Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this is a super fun book club. Sorry, I'm outside in the cold in front of my friend's house right now. Anyway, we're talking to noted DJ Richard Blade. So if you don't, Richard has had a long career in Southern California at K-Rock and other various radio stations going on 40 something years now. And he wrote about this whole history in a, his memoir a couple of years ago called World In My Eyes, named after the Depeche Mode song. Well, I've been trying to track him down for a, a few months now to talk about that book. He finally replied recently and said, you know what, let's talk now because I have another book to talk about called The Lockdown Interviews. So during COVID, he um, was able to just kind of hop on Zoom with a lot of his rock star friends, Duran Duran, Simple Minds, The Cult, Depeche Mode, you name it. He's got friends everywhere because he's been in music for so long and he just did long form interviews with them. One of the cars is driving by. So uh, he turned all of those into a book too and that recently came out as well. So we get into the whole history of both of these books. Of course, I had to ask him about being in Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. I used to love that movie. I still do actually, it's kind of a guilty pleasure his acting career, what he did after World In My Eyes, which kind of ends in sort of a cliffhanger as far as his career goes. Uh, we just get into a little bit of everything, a lot of stories of who's fun to interview, who's not, concerts, people, friends, he's seen it all. Anyway, he's a legend. In, in the DJ world, he's a legend and we're really lucky to have him. Uh, he called me, well, get this. So he lives in LA, but when we talked, he was in Mexico for like some big event. So that's where we chatted from. So before we get to the new book, I want to know the, your, the world in my eyes ended on sort of a cliffhanger with, yep. you know, I, I, you've moved to the Caribbean to be a scuba diver, scuba instructor. You've done that for a little while. You want to go back to the States and you don't know what the future holds. And I could have looked this up, but I purposely didn't because I thought I want to, that's the first question I want to ask Richard. So when you get back from the Caribbean, what do you do? The first thing that Krista and I did, because uh, the wife and I came back together with the doggies and the kitty, um, was find a place to live. We had nowhere. We'd sold everything, you know. So uh, we put the house on the market in the Caribbean. Um, one mistake. I wish I'd kept that one, you know, because it was a lovely house. But but it, it didn't do anything in real estate for about five years. But no one, everyone thinks they're an expert and no one is, you know. In, in hindsight, we're all Bill Gates, right? We can yes. all make brilliant decisions. But um, no, I moved back. We wanted to uh, find a place to live in L.A. And I thought I would start um when i got back trying to sell some tv shows that was my idea uh -huh. not to, not to go back into radio okay and we found a place uh in the valley that we loved and so uh we put some money down bought that and then um i started uh pitching some ideas for tv shows and while i was doing that vh1 approached me because they liked the pitches, but they had a show that they were developing that they wanted me to uh, work on and produce. And that was Bands Reunited. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I was addicted to that show. Yeah. So I, I did the, that. yeah, I produced a, two seasons of that. A friend of mine, Pat Francis, I think had a hand in creating that show in some form or another. Probably. So, it was or originally an English idea. It came from Britain. Oh, okay. And okay. then it was maybe Pat bought the rights to it and then Maybe. sold it to the I don't H1. remember what the full story is. That was great. What do you think something like that will ever come back? 
Maybe, but, it, you know, they'd have to do probably 90s bands or yeah, something true. like that because after two seasons, we ran out of, you know, the good bands that we wanted to do because, like, the police were getting back together by themselves. Yeah. Morrissey was having none of it because uh, yeah, so there was no chance of a Smiths reunion. Even a failed yeah. one would have been great yeah. to get Johnny yeah. Marr and Morrissey, you know, facing off. Of course. And, oh, um, man. Yeah, we didn't want to just do one-hit wonders or anything like that because uh -huh. uh, that would be really taking away from the show. Yeah. And so um, we folded it after two two really fun seasons. It was it yeah. was great. And um, at the same time as I was doing that, I got this phone call from a satellite radio company, which I, I knew nothing about. And they said, "Would you do a show for us?" And I said, "Sure." And that was serious. And uh, when I started with them, they had two hundred and thirty four thousand subscribers. That was it nationwide, which means like one person in each town, you know. And uh, now it's like thirty six million subscribers and 12 million on the app i mean it's crazy biggest radio company in the world yeah. uh so i did that and 10 days later i get a phone call from another radio company uh clear channel and they wanted me to come and uh, go to star 98.7 because ryan seacrest mm -hmm. was leaving star and going to kiss fm mm -hmm. and they wanted someone with a bit of a name to uh like fill in for where mm -hmm. ryan was but they didn't trust me enough to do a, a complete show oh. because they they thought oh he's a k-rock guy you know uh -huh. he's gonna be uh -huh. wild and uh, so i would do two features a day one for the morning show one at the afternoon they promote it all uh, throughout the day richard blade on star and all that kind of stuff so it it was a period where everything suddenly started taking off again after about five or six months it all started going and uh and you know still I, going it, strong Still going strong. You know, the uh, Clear Channel thing, I didn't really enjoy because it was terrestrial radio on its last legs. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I stayed with them for about two years. And then I thought, no, I, I just can't can't do this. It just isn't right, you know. Yeah. The big difference between terrestrial radio and satellite radio is the thrust of satellite radio is the subscribers. It's mm -hmm. all about the subscribers. And um, they don't sell commercials on any of the music channels. So it's everything you do, will it be better for the subscriber? Will it make them listen and be interested? 99% of all commercial radio is about the advertiser, yeah. not, the, not the listener. Mm -hmm. They don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the music is the interruption to the commercials. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't like that. You know, yeah. work, working the two side by side, satellite and terrestrial, I was like, no, there's, there's a world of difference. It should be f when when I started at K-Rock back in the early days with people like Jed the Fish and Dusty Street and Freddie Snakeskin and R Romando, it was always, what can we do to make the listeners excited and make them, right. you, you know, right. and the advertisers were secondary. You know, it's yeah. great that they're there, great that they're paying our wages, which weren't much and all that, but it was, it was fun. And, yeah. But terrestrial radio had, had seemed to reach a point where it was like corporations, everything yes. corporations. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I bailed from Clear Channel and, and very happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in reading, well, I mean, I've had a fascination with you ever since Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I'll ask you more about that in a minute. It's DTV time, John. It is. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, I can't believe you just said that. I've seen that movie a million times. Um, I uh, There just aren't that many, as you know, people out there who can 
sustain a thriving career like you. There's people like Eddie Trunk, and I can think of Jake Rude. I can think mm. of maybe a couple of other people. I mean, some of them, like the Ryan Seacrest, go into television or whatever. Right. But doing what you do, there aren't that many anymore, you know? Yeah, I think people don't stick with it. And it's funny that you mentioned Eddie and Jake, because I was just with them at the Sands. In That's what they Jake, I'm friendly with Jake. He's one of our oh, listeners. So what a great guy. Yeah. Such a great guy. And, uh, he, you know, we, we hadn't met before. And uh, he was good friends with another DJ friend of mine called Stephen Wayne. And I said, well, bring, bring him over to my room. Yeah. And because uh, I got I was leaving a day early. I said, you know, I got to leave this afternoon. So bring him over to my room and we'll, we'll have some tea. And he, yeah. we, he came over. We chatted. We took photos. One of the nicest guys you could meet. And yeah. Eddie was fantastic. We did some stuff yeah. on stage together with the cult and oh, nice. uh, living color. And it was yeah. fun because those are kind of crossovers for, it, for my exactly genre. And, yes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if they're friends of yours, then you've got good taste in friends. Good, Both of them good. good people. Good. Well, I got a million more questions about this, but let's talk about the lockdown interviews. And then I, and then I have a bunch of things that I've cherry picked from world in my eyes. Um, one thing I'm curious, so lockdown interviews, I guess, as the name uh, implies, these are interviews you did with, I don't know, it was like 15 or 20 people here, yeah. all of whom people would know, John Taylor, Boy George, Majur, Terry Nunn, Cy Cernan, Dave Wakeling, a lot of these people have been on here, thank goodness. And um you are. What was the nature of these interviews? Were they interviews you'd conducted over your career and you just combined no. them in a book or you did them during lockdown? Did them during lockdown. And that was okay. one of the premise for me, because normally, even though I'm, I'm, I'm friends with like John and Jim Kerr and, and Terry, obviously, and people like that, when you're doing the interviews, it's set up by the press people and they go, look, you've got 20 minutes because, uh, you know, after that, they've got to get ready for entertainment tonight. And then they've got a phoner with uh, Australia and stuff. So you have 20 minutes and uh, you do as best you can during the lockdown because they didn't have any touring schedule and they couldn't go into the recording studio. They were stuck at home just like we were stuck at home. We would set it up on Zoom and just go. And, you know, some of these interviews, like, the one with boy George was actually three and a half hours long. It was so much fun. We were doing the interview and then uh, I said, oh, I'm going to be doing a boy George week on this is the day on Sirius XM because oh, I'd love to host a show. And I said, well, why, why don't we do it? And he goes, sure. And he said, what would it take? And I said, well, we'll go. You send me a list of music that you like and do the intros and then uh, we'll put them in. And he goes, well, let's do it now. He said, oh, I'll come up with the songs. And so he just spent like 40 minutes talking. How about this song? We're like, yeah, yeah, everything's great, you know? And then he did the intros up for a six hour show. Oh I mean, my gosh. I know he was like, I've got nowhere to go. So, <laughs> and that was the, the whole idea of the lockdown interviews that finally you could basically put your feet up with these artists uh -huh. and go, okay, we got, yeah. we've got some time. Let's really get into this, you know, rather than, the new album, where did it come from? Yeah, How did exactly. You get the title? You That's know? what I love about it. So a couple of questions about that. So when you did this, was the intention for a book? Was it the was the intention to, I don't know, put the post the video of your interviews on YouTube or something? What was no, the plan? The, the intention was to get the content and put the audio on Sirius XM. Okay. And okay. so, if so you these go, weren't if you, for Sirius, I wonder. Yeah. Okay. So if you go to the app and you go to podcasts and you look for just can't get enough with Richard Blade, then you'll find um, Spandau Ballet, you know, okay. uh, Gary okay. Kemp and that kind of thing. 
Duran Duran, John Taylor. And then uh, all of these were there. And I thought, there's so much good stuff. And so I yeah. reached out to the artists and said, how could I put you in a book? And they're like, oh, yeah, that would be yeah. great. You know, I said, because I've got all these um, amazing people, you know, and you'll be in the same book as as Duran and Culture Club and everyone like that. And they're like, done, please just do it. Nice. And so um, I was able to do that. And that's that's why that book was uh, like 500 odd pages, because wow. the interviews were so long. And then I did a second book like it I got here because I just was quoting from it for today's show called The Unlocked interviews oh. which is after the fact so uh -huh. it's it's about bands going back out on the road and touring so i talked with um the cult about going back out on the road after covid what's it like soft cell on their uh, yeah. upcoming tour roxy music their 50th anniversary tour so great um yeah smithereens um andrew ferris of in excess oh, he's because he's yeah. yeah he's doing country now yes but he we is talk, yeah we talked about that and then uh -huh. we got deep into in excess and yeah. what it was like losing you know his best friend and all that kind of stuff yeah. so um this was kind of the sequel the unlocked interview I love because it. and now everyone's kind of going back to it you know yeah so i have my biggest question about this is something that i've wondered when you interview somebody like a gary kemp who you have a long history with right are you you know, from one interviewer to another, are you asking things you already know that you're kind of teeing up a good story? Are you looking to add more layers or color to stories you're fuzzy about? Are you, I mean, I'm, I know you're curious. Are you learning new things? How do you approach an interview with someone you already know? Well, that's a great question because you know the answer to a lot of the questions before you ask them. So I, I try and ask the questions that a listener would want to know. And uh, I try and phrase it so it, it's, if I do know the answer, it's not obvious. Yeah. Um, like with Gary Kemp, he was doing a lot of different projects at the time, uh, including uh, playing with um, Nick Mason's Source of Full of Secrets, which is- I just a, saw them a, here recently. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I knew nothing about that. So I wanted to talk to him about that and also talk to him about his album. He'd put out a solo album and then- see where it took us uh, and, and then let it, let it drift naturally. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what happened with, with Gary and with Terry, of course, uh, you know, I know her, know her husband, know her family and everything like that. But I wanted to uh, get into what it was like, you know, to be locked down suddenly and mm -hmm. to be off the road because I hadn't seen her. And, uh, you know, she was just stuck at home. And, you know, what was what was that like for her to s suddenly have, you know, the carpet pulled out from under your, yeah. underneath your feet? Because when you're w used to working <clears throat> every other weekend, it's tough. Yeah, especially if you're a band like so many of these people are now who are reliant on touring. I mean, oh, yeah. Gary Kemp makes a lot of true money and um, because he wrote that song, but not everyone's in that position. No. And so they rely heavily on these tours to, you know, pay their bills. I'm curious. And did you ask Terry about Mar-a-Lago? That was uh, a, no. A did they back. did they play at Mar-a-Lago? They did played you... Mar-a-Lago New Year's Eve at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, oh, Terry. Ago. Terry. Terry Berlin. Yeah. Oh, I'd already. Did I say Gary? Oh, sorry. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I'd already spoken to Terry about that, and uh, because a couple of people had reached out to me and uh -huh. said um, if I was going to work with her. Yeah, um, the, they didn't want to be on the gigs. Yeah, and uh, Dave Wakelin was one, and all that. So I, I called her up and I said, "Terry, this was a big, big 
mistake. I said, you know, because right now it uh, it looks like you know a political statement, and so um, she hummed and hard for a little bit, which is understandable because you know unless you've got your reply, you know, scripted, you know, she was very honest about it, and then about a day and a half later, she uh, emailed. The people that I'd, I'd mentioned and said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset anyone. I already upset my band. They didn't play. It was just, you know, me going over basically. And um, it's, it's not one of those things I meant as a statement. It was a, just an opportunity to do a gig and yeah. I didn't realize, you know, and she was very, very forthright with it. Mm -hmm. And um, everyone immediately said, Hey, you know, you're not trying to hide and mm -hmm. dark and cover and make excuses. So, Guess what? We all fuck up. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You and I are aligned politically and I follow you on Twitter and like a lot of your political posts. So <laughs> I, I know that you and I would feel similarly on this. And I just was curious um, what, since you know her well, what the blowback of that might have been, because I think it lingers even a little bit now. Um, mm -hmm. okay. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, th th there's... There's just such I a can, I, I, I can't think of I can't think of the number it would take for me to... DJ and MC a party for Trump. I honestly can't, you know, uh, I, I don't, th there would be a number I'm sure, you know, cause we're all prostitutes in the end, uh -huh. but yeah. I, 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 it's not something I, and I don't think my wife would let me do it. She would be so upset with me. She would, she would say, how can you believe one thing and do another, you know? So Agreed. yeah. And, and it's, yeah. it's, it's such a shame, John, that certain factions have put America in this position where, it's so divided, I know. you know, because we're all just Americans. It doesn't matter if we're black or white or gay or female or mm -hmm. orange or yellow or British originally or mm -hmm. Spanish originally or whatever, because unless you're native American, then you're descended from immigrants, you know, and, right. you know, and it's, it's, I, I came here because it was literally the vision I had when I was a little kid of Kennedy and the city on the hill and Camelot and America was the promised land. And it really was for so, so many years. And it yeah. wasn't until the last six years that it's ripped itself apart. There's always been divisions, obviously, sure. but, but it was more they like, were, more like sport teams, you exactly. know, exactly. They were like, you know, cordial, yeah. just, you know, yeah, disagree. Fuck, fuck you. you like, you like the Patriots, fuck Brady, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Right. But uh, it wasn't anything serious. But yeah. then suddenly it got, you know, the, the Democrats are, sure are, are pedophiles. And I, yeah. mean, oh, I know it's like, why? No, they're not. They're Americans. Hello. I know. I know. You know? Um, not to dwell on this too much, but one of the saddest things that I've seen come from all of this, you mentioned in excess, John Ferris, who has always been one of my favorite musicians and drummers from one of my favorite bands, appears to be on the wrong side of a lot of this and it's oh, been wow. dis yeah he'll post a lot of things about in support of like the truckers the convoy who are like anti-vaxxing and mm. uh in support of like truth social and it's just so sad when you see the people that you've loved and it's like i was saying earlier it's a stink that you can't ever quite get off no. and um it just goes to the heart of our sense of morality and it's so counterintuitive to what we believe mm -hmm. is right that it's really hard to get past in this day and age i think you know yeah because yeah. the whole thing about americans is well <laughs> Ch churchill said it best 
He said, Americans can always be trusted to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other possibility. He, he was brilliant. I mean, Churchill yeah, was fantastic. He was. But the, the thing about Americans is the number one thing is they reach out their hand to you and they yeah. grab you and they pull you forward. Yeah. They always have done that. America's always been a country to help people out of the gutter and to give them that hand. And for the last few years, that hand has been a fist. And yeah. it's been if, if, you, if you're so. not the yeah if you're not the same as us I'm not going to help you. And yeah. It's like wait 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 hang on. Yeah. If that's yeah. that's not America. That is not. You know? No. And you of all people who have come who came here you know with a goal and a dream and you made it happen and are a a boon to the culture you know a blessing to the culture that could be ha that could happen to so many other people and we vilify them and won't allow it and, um, and i'm okay. a proud american citizen you know yes I, you I, are I, I took my oath and i voted in every election since and yeah. not all not always democrat i voted yeah. for republic i voted for republicans oh, I too I, I vote Same. for the can candidate and for the policies you know it's uh, it's it's i don't vote for the team you know no. i vote for what's i think's right but anyway there you go yeah yeah, I'm the same. Okay, there's a. I want to ask you some questions that's that leapt to me out of world in my eyes. One of the first ones was when you were talking about. First of all, I mean, just the life you've had, Richard, of being, you know, just going all over Europe to be a DJ for a couple of months here and then a couple months there, and swimming during the day and sex with everybody. I, I first of all, I am frankly, I'm shocked you don't have children all over Europe. You know what well, I mean? I I, I, I often wonder that if I, I go back to Norway, if I'm going to see some 40 year olds, Richard Blades walking around, but uh, it's, it's so funny though. But one of my buddies from who's mentioned in the book a couple of times, and I haven't really spent any time with him for about 40 years is coming to stay with my wife and I, uh, in about six weeks time, a guy called John Bennett. He's, it was the three of us, John Bennett, Mike Frost and myself. And, uh, he he said, oh, "God, I can't wait to catch up with everything, you know." And because we had some great times together, you know, it was it was uh, it it was uh, quite something, you know. And going to these different towns and uh -huh. not not knowing what they were going to be like, and then some of them were just so incredible. Like Bergen in Norway yeah. was just spectacular town and great people. And the same with uh, Vienna in Austria was great. And this little town called Kreuzlingen in Switzerland on the German border was was fabulous because you had the uh, the swiss and the germans interacting and the the club would finish at midnight and then you'd go into germany and continue the party because you know you're 21 years old and you can party until five in the morning at that of course time, you know? of course yeah. so one of the things you're t you're detailing a story about one of these nights and you tell um this would have been in the 70s because if i remember correctly you put on the doobie brothers to really lift you know, long train party running. going, long train yeah. running. There and you go. the Doobie Brothers are one of my favorite bands of all time. And I thought, in this day and age, I can't imagine a room getting crazy, going crazy to a Doobie Brothers song. But maybe mm -hmm. prior to Donna Summer and Love to Love You, that was what a DJ had. That was one of the best dance songs there was. Absolutely. You had uh, Long Train Running, you had Free All Right Now, uh, sure. which was a great foot stomper. Uh, Telegram Sam from uh, yes, T-Rex was a big one. Rebel Rebel from Bowie. Uh, but a lot of them were real rock songs, you know, that, that got people going. And uh, believe it or not, you know, I would play Steely Dan, do it again and speed up, speed it up just a little bit and uh, turn the bass up on it. And people would dance to that in Europe because there, there wasn't that 
catalog of music that we have now there wasn't just can't get enough from depeche mode to put on or tainted love from soft cell uh, that would always drive the dance floor so you had to look for something with a beat uh, batman turner over overdrive ain't seen nothing yet was a Perfect. huge song for me particularly yeah. with the dr the drinking crowd in norway the the vikings they loved it <laughs> Yeah, when you detail that, and I just think, I can't imagine a room going crazy to the doobies, but then I've been alive for most of, you know, dance music's history. And th that got me thinking, and I, I, you've probably been asked this a billion times, what does it take to keep a party going like that? How often do you insert yourself? How long do you talk when you do? How, do you always know what song needs to follow what song? Do you do it based on beats per minute? Do you do it on field? Do you do, what? Do you, tell us your... Give us some behind the scenes sausage making on this. Um, is it knowing when to insert yourself with some commentary and when not to? How do you know to read the room? That is a very good question. And I, I think it just comes from, you know, 10,000 hours of practice, really. Right. Um, but reading the room is exactly what I was going to say. That That's the number one thing. You can't go in. Uh, I don't think to any situation unless you, you know, pull open fold or whatever, and they're expecting uh -huh whole Oakenfold to do this. Um, you can't go in uh, with something like pre-recorded or lined up in your head. You can have an idea, you know, looking at the crowd going, okay, I'm going to start with this song. It's going to be great. Uh, but then you have to see the reaction of the crowd. And if, if they're responding, then maybe keep that, that level. If they're not responding, then uh, go in a completely different direction and be willing to do that. And I'll, I'll find that I'll be doing an 80s party and, you know, the crowd will be in the 40s or 50s or whatever. And quite often, I'll look at them and I'll go, I'm going to do something completely different here. And I'll drop in like Dancing Queen. Mm. And nine times out of 10, the, it's the, the girls just love it. And they run out on the floor. And of course, being a guy, you know that if the girls love it, then you're going to love it too, because right. the girls are out there dancing. And right. so the husband's like, oh, my wife's having a good time. And then you follow it up with, you know, either Earth, Wind and Fire or Michael Jackson. Right. So, and I'll do a little disco set mm -hmm. and uh, just, to, just to bust it up. And at the end of the disco set, go into something up-tempo, whether it's a New Order or Depeche Mode or something like that, or Pet Shop mm -hmm. Boys, to get back to the 80s. But it just makes a little variety and keeps the room pumping. And yes. it was the same back in the old days, you know, whether it was in Norway or in Sweden or in, in Spain or whatever, you know, throw them that little distraction, that little nugget. And the people go, wow, I wasn't expecting yeah. that. And you, you see people at the bar who are ordering a drink, turn around like that to look at the yeah. dance floor and they're like, I'll be back, you know, and then uh -huh. th that's, that's what you're looking for the whole time for me to just have that un unexpected flow of energy to keep keep it up but be able to do that little spark every so often sure i'm wondering if how deeper cuts do they ever work because like for instance my own listening habits is i i'm a huge depeche mode fan too but i've heard i just can't get enough a billion times i'm not going to put that on for my own enjoyment right. very often i'm going to put on something deeper world in my eyes maybe or something mm -hmm. like that when you're DJing in a club or in a party environment like that, that prob does that philosophy go out the window? They just want to hear yeah. the bangers they're used to. Yeah, you're not there to educate them. Yeah, they're yeah. they're there, even if it's you know a Richard Blade night or whatever. Once they've met you and taken a photograph or whatever, or you signed a book, whatever it is, then their next priority is meeting someone, hooking up, 
having a drink, having a dance. So yeah. they, they really didn't come there to get educated in uh, a deep cuff. You know, if I put on Halo as great as it is, uh, they're not going to dance. They, they yeah. want to hear the, the easy ones. They don't have to think about it. That way they can concentrate on their pickup lines and all that kind of stuff. And I think you have to know your place in in society. You know, you, no one is that great. You know, I mean, if it was Brad Pitt DJ, maybe it'd be different. You know, or yeah, Jennifer yeah. Aniston, but it's not. And so uh, I just want to make sure they're having a, a great night. Yeah. And um, so at the end of the evening, when they go home, they go, "Wow, I, I heard all my favorite yeah. songs. I got to meet Richard, and I met these two hot chicks, and I got uh -huh. the phone number." And and uh -huh. that that is what the night is all about. And so, um. A, I think probably, I would say every gig, but uh, that would be an exaggeration. Say of 10 gigs, I'd say at seven out of 10, someone would come up to me and go, I got this great song that nobody will know, but you've probably got it. And if you put it on, no one's going to know it, but they'll love it. And I'm like, mm, oh, no, no. The floor going to empty at that Yeah, moment. exactly. You're going to lose it. And, and usually... You, you, DJ, you know, if you give me a time frame, I'm DJing from eight until midnight, they're going to ask for it at 1120. Mm -hmm. And if you lose the floor at 1120, you've lost the night that you're not going to get it back in the last 35 minutes. It's not yes. going to happen. So that that's when I have to pretend I'm the world's worst DJ. And go, oh, I don't have that song. Great track. But <laughs> I, I just don't have it, you know, but we could do this one for you. Uh -huh. you know? and, because it, that's the whole thing. You know, it, it's yeah. not to prove I'm smarter than anyone else. It's to, yeah. it's to prove that I want to make sure that they leave with a smile on their face. Can you tell us what song you'll, you'd be fine never playing again? Oh, uh, Tarzan that, boy, Tarzan. Oh, really? That's what, comes, that's, what, <laughs> that's what comes to mind right now. But, but my wife and I play this game and it's, uh, you could do it with songs. You could do it with movies. You can do it with TV shows. You can do it with books. You can do it with anything. Uh, and that is the boat sinking. You're racing for the lifeboat and you pass the library of DVDs, albums, uh, CDs, books, whatever it is. Which five do you grab? And, yes. and we always say to people, it can change in 10 minutes. Uh -huh. You eat, eat a meal, you feel full, you're feeling tired, it's changed. Uh -huh. which, which five movies do you grab right now to take with you to the desert island for the next yeah. five months before you're rescued? You know, assuming uh -huh. you've got a solar-powered DVD player and, to, you know, <laughs> we'll get into the details. But uh, we, we play that game. But right now it would be Baltimore or Tarzan. Boy, I'd be fine not playing that. <laughs> is that one of the songs you have to you feel like you have to play a lot no not really no. i don't okay. i don't know that's, okay. that's the one that just popped into okay. my brain yeah all right what song are, have you played the most that you're nowhere you're not remotely sick of just can't get enough probably no. uh, okay tainted love still yeah okay uh, i mean you know i mean we all all yeah. know that but tainted love when people go boom boom yes He's put, uh -huh. punching their fists in the air. You go, that's great. You know, they're really enjoying it. And for a lot of these people, because they're not like you, John, and they're not like me, they don't hear this music every day. Yeah. You know, they, they go to work and they have elevated music in the background. Maybe they have an instrumental version of it, you know, beautiful music version of it. Like if you call Alaska Airlines and you put on hold, it's lightning seeds and pure really? over and over again, but an orchestral version of it. Oh, you try wow. it and um <laughs> but so they don't hear it 
uh, on that regular basis. And when you see them excited and punching their hands in the air and laughing and singing along, then you go, wow, yeah, I did my job on that one. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a story about you and Depeche Mode. It was interesting learning that they're your favorite band because I have a memory that combines the two of you that I'll never forget. So when I was in college in the 90s, um, <laughs> my poor friends, anytime I would be in some other dorm room or some other apartment or whatever with some friends, and I would see that they had the Richard Blade CDs and, because I was too cheap to buy them. And I was in Provo, <laughs> Utah, going to BYU, and they weren't you know, readily available. There was no Amazon to buy that stuff. So whenever I would see those in someone else's apartment, I would stop what I was doing and say, I'm, I need to, I need to dub all the songs that I like from your Richard Blade compilation onto sure, a mixtape so that I have them. And all my you. friends would get annoyed because we'd all, they'd all just be sitting there waiting for me to finish. And I remember to this day, I was recording. I went into some apartment with some friends of people I didn't know. And they had a Richard Blade CD. And I said, can I record this off you? And we're all sitting there waiting for it to finish. And on the news is David Gahan because he's just tried to commit suicide. Right. So while I'm recording your CD onto a tape, David Gahan is on the news having just tried to commit suicide. And then to learn later that they are your favorite band and you guys have this history. Yeah. Um, what is it about Depeche Mode that you love so much? And I love them too, but can we, can we agree that they haven't really made a good album in a while? Oh, I, I, I 100% agree on that. 100%. Okay. Okay. You know, uh, I, I, I'm one of the few people that didn't really love songs of faith and devotion even. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I, I have to go back and re-listen to it separately and because I, I probably am wrong. You know, it was I just, love that one. Other than yeah. that, playing the angel was pretty good, but other than mm -hmm. that's... Yeah, I enjoyed playing the angel. Yeah, but uh, I, I know it, 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 I'm waiting for the hook to come in the, the song. They always used to have such a great hook, you know, listen to, you know, but not tonight, you know, the opening, Oh God, it's raining. I mean, just think little things like that. Um, uh, leave in silence. If, you know, we could stop this from spreading like a cancer and then just lines that Martin Gore came up with that and see you uh, just in fantastic lyrics. And, um, but they recently it's, well, not recently last 15 years or so. It's, it's like, wh where are they? Um, yeah. But it's the same for a, a lot of bands. But the thing I love about Depeche Mode is that they've defied all the odds. Um, you know, they should have broken up after the first album, you know, mm -hmm. when Vince Clark left because he was the driving force behind Depeche Mode. But right. they continued, you know, and, and pulled Martin out and said, you know, can you write the songs? And boy, mm -hmm. could he write the songs? He was brilliant. You know, no Vince kidding. went on to do his own thing. Yes. Spectacular. Also you know? brilliant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Yazoo and Erasure, Erasure. fabulous. Yep. Uh, but um, Depeche, you know, then reformed when they brought in Alan Wilder and what a great addition Alan was to the band. And it seemed that every album they did after that was progressively better and better. You know, you come up with an album like Black Celebration. It's like, oh, that's it. You can't top that. But then you have music for the masses and you have Violator. And it, it's phenomenal. And so I, I, plus Dave is such a great front man. He is. Uh, uh, he could front any band. He, mm -hmm. You could put him in front of Judas Priest mm -hmm. if Rob Halford retired mm -hmm. and 
Dave could front them. He is just sure. an incredible performer. And so they deliver live and they deliver on album or used to. And they're just, and they're, they're really nice people in, in person. And it's funny, and I'm not, not trying to plug it, but in the Unlocked interviews, Howard Jones, I talked with him in it again. And the interview starts and he goes, Richard, before we start, he says, can I ask you about Fletcher? Because he said, I know, yeah. I know he's a friend of yours. And then um, we talk about Andy, and he said how he got to know Andy. Uh, and a little, little bit photo with me. Oh, Andy. there it is. Yep. Yeah. And then he says, I want to get the quote. He, this is uh, Howard Jones. Yes, I believe that Depeche Mode are one of the most unique bands you could think of. I remember seeing them on posters when I was playing similar gigs around London, you know, little dives, anywhere you could get a gig. And for them to make the transition to this tra uh, transcendent stadium act doesn't really fit into any genre. They're not a traditional rock band, and they're not really an electronic band. They've got their own space. That's a hell of an achievement, so hats off to them. And Dave is an amazing frontman, so incredible. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, that's from a fellow musician. That's from Howard Jones, who came out, you know, at the same time. Yes. was having hits. Bigger yeah. hits than them in the early days. Actually, That's true. You know? yeah. I'm a huge Howard fan. He's been on here too. Yeah, to me, the to me, Depeche Mode are like the Rolling Stones of New Age. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, wh whatever pedestal Rolling Stones or place they hold in in classic rock, Depeche Mode hold that similar spot in New Wave music. You know, without without a doubt, hundred percent. Yeah, all the singles, all the impact, all that stuff. Um, let's talk about. Girls just want to have fun for a minute because that's when you came on a lot of our radar. Any pe people who weren't in, in LA anyway. Um, one thing I've always wondered is if you had a hand at all in picking or selecting any of the music on the soundtrack. No, I wish I had. Really? I, I, I was just brought in to do a part that was described in the script as a Richard Blade type. Right. And, uh, you know, I was thrilled to do it. And I was thrilled to work with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker again because uh, we'd done square pegs together right. and she was a sweetheart. And then last summer, uh, the wife and I went to New York and she bought, uh, Krista had bought tickets for Plaza suite, which was uh, a play mm -hmm. you know, that Neil Simon. Neil Simon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, Sarah Jessica Parker and her hubby. Oh, shoot. Matthew Broderick, Matthew Broderick. Yes. Uh, the two of them starring in it. And so I emailed uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's uh, people and said, hey, I'm not looking for tickets or anything like that. I'm just coming on uh, your closing night. But they actually extended it two weeks, but we didn't know that. Um, and uh, I'd love to say hi to Sarah if you could ask her. And if, if not, I completely understand. And then 20 minutes later, I get an email back saying she'd love to see you. And oh, uh, nice. um, she said they're not doing meet and greets because of COVID protocols. But if you stay in your seat at the end of the show and tell the ushers that uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is going to see you, they'll take you back uh, and, and you'll meet her back, backstage so, or, or in, in the theater. So uh -huh. Krista and I wait, and we're expecting about you know, 40 people to all have the same thing, just the two of us. And she comes out with Matthew, and uh, we're all masked up. And she goes, are you vaxxed? I'm like, oh, boy, I'm vaxxed. Yeah, I'm boosted. Yes. And she goes, great. We all take the mask <laughs> off. And uh, she give me a hug. And we, we yes. hug it out. And she turns to Matthew and goes, you don't understand. When I was growing up in L.A., Richard was everything to me. And then we got when I got to work with him in Square Pegs, I was so happy. 
couldn't have. I mean, here's yes. a, a, a woman who's achieved so much success yes. on an ongoing basis yeah. and couldn't have been any nicer. And, and I'm with her and the sausage king of Chicago <laughs> are standing there, you know, and Krista is, it, it was just wonderful. And she goes, yes. you know, what are you, what are you doing in New York? I said, I'm DJing a party in Rye. And she goes, oh, that's a lovely part. And oh, it's lovely there. And I'm like, wow, you know, nice. You could, she could live any way she wants, you know, I mean, Isn't so that just, great? but she could not have been more down to earth. And mm -hmm. we talked for about 20 minutes and, Finally, uh, you know, her, her driver's like looking and yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, nope. She split. We took photos and all That's that. Great. It was just the four of us. It was no pretentiousness. So nice. Yeah. So anyone who's a fan of her or Matthew, and uh, really, you, you're, you have not misplaced your Good. Uh, your friend, your fanship. They are great people. Good to know. Um, I had one question about uh, also about the soundtrack. I've had Martin Page on here a couple of times. And um he, you know, started out in that band Q Feel, and they really mm -hmm. broke out. He always said that that song, uh, Dancing in Heaven, was never much of anything of anywhere other than in K-Rock, on right. K-Rock in L.A. And Maurice White heard it, and that's what led to Martin and Maurice working together on some uh, Earth, Wind & Fire and solo material. And I've always wondered if that was true, because that song, for most of us, the impression we get is that song breaks out from Girls Just Want to Have Fun. But did you already know it really well from being a oh, DJ oh, yeah. there? And, okay. Yeah, we we played it a lot on K-Rock and uh, at all my live gigs when I, you really? know, I was DJ, DJing every night in Florentine Gardens, 321 Odyssey, uh, these kind of clubs. That was one of always one of the top requests. It mm. was it was up there with just can't get enough and wow, don't you want me and all those yeah. others and lies from the Thompson Twins and Wham Rap. It was it was a big big song. So wow. um, okay, but I don't know why it didn't cross over because it's got that real fun alternative and pop feel. It totally could agree. easily fit onto a Kiss FM, but it didn't. Totally agree. Um, now, in your book, you talk about we should get into some of your interactions with other famous people. Um, I say other because it occurred to me while reading your book that there are probably times when you're almost more famous than the people you might be introducing or <laughs> you know talking about, especially in LA where you became quite a public figure. You say the most fun person is Boy George. And yeah. based on what you, the story you were telling earlier, that sounds true. What makes him the most fun? He seems that way definitely whenever he's interviewed. Uh, the good thing about Boy George is he's got no filter. He is completely open and he'll say what he wants when he wants. And he is so funny and so intelligent. And I, I'm, I just love talking with him. Uh, and you learn something every single time. Mm -hmm. And you, you look at this guy and he's been through the highs and lows. You know, he's been through higher highs than probably we'll ever know and yeah. lower lows than hopefully we'll ever know. And yeah. yet he survived and he's doing better now than he was in 83 or 84. I mean, he is a coach on The Voice in Australia, huh? making a lot of money there. He was just nice. on um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is kind of like a celebrity version of Survivor. Yeah, in the UK, Australia. I believe, right? Yeah, oh, Australia and the UK. And... Um, but he is so much fun. He will actually make you laugh out loud when you're doing interviews. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite quotes was, you know, when I said to him in uh, 83, there's a lot of talk about your sexuality. And he said, don't get fooled. There's a whole lot of man under this dress. <laughs> 
was like, <laughs> oh, he's the best. Oh, he is. I love him. I love him. I love him. Now, speaking of problematic people, you say in the book, what are your very favorite is Morrissey, which mm-hmm. is so interesting. I'm a, I, sh- I can't quit Morrissey just yet. Mm-hmm. I am a gigantic Smiths and Morrissey solo fan, despite the problematic opinions and things that he's said over the years. And um, he just doesn't strike me as a conversationalist at all. And yet he, you love him. How? Yeah. Why? I did my best ever interview with Morrissey in yeah. 1991 um and he came into k-rock for 20 minutes and stayed for an hour and a half and it was phenomenal and he is so intelligent and so focused and if he if you get him on the right day you you've got such a treat in store for you if you get him on the wrong day the interview is probably eight minutes of pain yeah. mm-hmm. and and nothing if you get him on the right day it's it's pure brilliance Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what makes it the right day, and I don't know what makes it the wrong day. But in 1991, it was definitely the right day, and it was just one of those moments that I will remember forever, yeah. and um, just absolutely loved it. But then, after Bands Reunited, he didn't like me. You know, he actually said in LA Times that he's been sitting in his the window of uh, his West Hollywood house with an air gun waiting for Richard Blade to come up the uh, driveway with the VH1 crew. And, um, but then about four months ago, out of the blue, I had an email from Morrissey. And at the same time as I got the email, I got an email from Alan White, who's his guitarist. And Alan White comes to all the Smiths Morrissey conventions and hangs out with my dear friend, a guy called Ray DeVries, who's got a a record store, a real record store called Chaos Records, named after... Uh, the villain in Get Smart, Chaos, K-A-O-S. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know Alan and Morrissey, had, he, he emailed me say, Morrissey just asked me for your email address. I gave it to him. I hope that's all right. Well, it's on my yeah. website, no problem. Yeah. And Morrissey emailed and said, I just want to say uh, I thank you for everything you've been saying about me on uh, your radio show. I know you've been a big supporter over the years. I really appreciate it. And wow. uh, it was out of the blue. And wow. I, and I read the email to Krista and I said, who was that from? She goes, uh, John, or, you know, like John Taylor. So I'm like, right. no, Morrissey. She goes, no. <laughs> and so I, I emailed him back and I said, look, it's great to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, I know you've got a new album in the works. Uh, I just want to say anything you want to do with it. Let me know if you want to do a, a live concert uh, in a, in the studio, I can get you into New York or Los Angeles to do it for Sirius XM. We can carry it live. We can record it so you can be happy with it. We can have a studio audience or you can do it just with your band. We can do an interview connected with it, or it can just be a standalone, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then. Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) And then about two weeks ago, and I got another email from him saying, uh, uh, I know that you are still, uh, thank you for playing bonfire of the teenagers okay uh, um uh, rebels without applause i think no bon- bon- the al- album is bonfire of the teen of teenagers okay. and the single was rebels without applause and i played it as one of my new sensations okay. and he said thank you so much for that and uh i really appreciate uh you being there for me and wow. i was like wow that's great and then on his uh, website which is morrisseycentral.com if you scroll down to like probably page three or four now uh, cause he has it in pages. Mm-hmm. He 
he took a photograph of the uh, Sirius XM display, which really, which was my show playing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's uh, one wow. of those things. I, I I still hold out hope. Yeah, that, uh, I'm going to uh, do something with him. I think I emailed him. Or I, I meant to email him when uh, Capital and uh, it, mm. within two days on Christmas Eve, mm -hmm. Capital Records dropped the album and his management company split from him. So really? I don't know if he split from them or they split from him, uh -huh. uh, but suddenly Morrissey found himself without a record label again. And uh, I don't think I knew know, that new album was out. That was it, probably the idea. It was, it was coming out in February. Oh, but I, oh. I managed to get a, a track from it ahead of yeah. time to play as a new sensation and to help promote it. Yeah. But now it, it's just been dropped by capital. The first oh, dropped. I thought you meant dropped like in the stores. No, dropped no, like no, it's not like gonna dropped, oh. like he's been dropped. Oh if you go oh, if you go to Marcy Central, it says if you go back to uh, just before Christmas Eve, just follow the dates, you'll see yeah. it says, uh, uh once again I find myself without a record label and now without a management company. And um then uh, he posted two days ago uh a UK chart. Mm -hmm. And uh, the headline was Another One Bites the Dust. And it was Rebels Without Applause, the single. Mm -hmm. And it said, new entry number 75. Oh. You know, and so. Oh, it, boy. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, so, I mean, I, I, I love the guy, but he does a lot of this to himself. I was thinking mm -hmm. recently, I've, I've paid to see Morrissey in concert five times, and he's actually shown up three times. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just anyway he i think he he does this to himself um now on the uh, you were mentioning i would have put these two in the first in the morrissey category but no you're saying two of the most difficult interviews are sting and bono because they're mm -hmm. always so serious oh absolutely uh i did the um uh live uh world premiere of rattle and hum mm. and um you know, this was their first movie and everything like that. And everyone was shown up in Hollywood and it was being carried live on TV. And uh, I, I walked out to them and I getting ready to say, what a night for you two and what a night for music fans. And uh, he, he took the mic out of my hand and said, I'll ask the questions. And he turned oh. around, turned his Ooh. back on me. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and that, that was it. You know, I mean, what are you can do wrestle, really? yeah. wrestle together, you know, and uh, so that that was tough. And the the same with Sting. Sting is I'm a huge fan of the Police, huge, and I've interviewed uh, Andy and Stuart many many times, mm -hmm. and they're great and fun open interviews. Mm -hmm. And um, Andy particularly has so many hobbies like photography and stuff like that. And Stuart mm -hmm. has done so many soundtracks. Went to his house in England when he was doing the Equalizer. Ooh. And uh, he was, it was just fabulous. Uh, Sting is very intense. You know, he's like intent and intense, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's the only person who has ever compared himself to Hitler in an interview. What? So what? Wh how do you see your role in the police? Um, I consider myself de Fuhrer. Oh, Whoa. come on man all right uh next question even if you believe that don't say that i know i know i know so that i mean that that, that 
just uh, throws you for a loop at that point yes. you're like okay you you're a multi-millionaire you're incredible talent you're a great singer you're a, uh-huh. a, a musician without almost you know competition no one can yeah. get close to you uh, like Stuart copeland said to me the thing about sting is you could put him down in the middle of a village in africa that has never seen white people in the western world and they'll be playing indigenous instruments that they've made themselves. Mm-hmm. And Sting will watch and ask to learn. And by that evening, he'll be better than any of them in that village playing yeah. and writing it. songs on it. He said he's just that gifted. Yeah. But what so I mean he's just on a different level, you know. Yeah. He, yes. both, both of them are so Hard to get through. To Interesting. I, yeah. I, I'm not surprised about staying. He seems humorless. I've had several people on here who have worked with him, and they say that, yeah, but he's actually a warm guy beneath it all. But we, you don't see that very often. Bono surprises me to some degree because he feels like such a rock on tour. He feels like a guy who likes to talk, and he likes to tell yeah. stories, and he likes to uplift, but he also likes to educate. It feels like... Uh, that, that, I don't know. Well, he, he that, that, remember, that was 1988 as well. True, was, and that would have been he, like the egoist, biggest yeah, ego he, time of the band. Because he's coming off a whole year of the Joshua Tree and yeah. finally finishing it with Rattle and Hum. Hollywood Boulevard is closed down mm-hmm. just for him and the band. And yeah. bam, you know, this yeah. guy with the microphone comes up and goes, ah. You know, he, they might not have even said, look, this is the live broadcast section. This is not the newspapers. This is not the radio. This is not tape. This is going out live. Maybe no one told him that. Yeah, maybe. But, but he, you know, what can you okay. do? Um, I was, I've always been curious. I mean, you're responsible in a lot of ways for introducing so much of New Wave and British music specifically to America, specifically New uh, uh, LA. I wonder how much of that had to do with you being British. In fact, I wondered how much of your career uh, stems from the fact that you being a Brit and having a British accent and Americans being taken with British accents and you making a living with your voice adds to sort of the mystique or the uh, majesty of Richard Blade. You know, it's part of this whole package. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it definitely helped in the beginning. Uh, in the very beginning, though, before I broke into radio and I was trying to get into radio, I couldn't get a job because of the accent. And I, I'm crap at doing an American accent. I tried and tried, but I un- end up sounding like John Wayne, you know, <laughs> get off your horse and go for your gun, muchacha. That's all I can do in an American, you know. So uh, it, it got to the point where the program director from KMET, and I, I write that in World in My Eyes, said, you will never work in this town with that accent. And uh, so I got hired in Bakersfield. They were willing to give me a chance and then went to San Luis Obispo and then to KNAC in Long Beach. And the uh, I made the transition to K-Rock because I was doing an ad on K-Rock uh, for a club I was uh, working at and the club couldn't afford to pay the DJs to voice it. So I was going to do it for free. And so I did it at K-Rock and the other DJs at K-Rock liked the idea of an English accent. and. Um, the morning team, Ramondo and Evans, they had a saying, uh, go to bed with April. She was on at night and she'd done a Playboy spread, good looking girl. Go to bed with April, wake up with Ramondo and Evans. Mm-hmm. And then 
they said, oh my God, that would be great with an English accent, you know, so could you do it? And so I said, go to bed with April and wake up with Ramondo and Evans. And so suddenly, you know, everyone, it's Freddie Snakeskin wanted one, Sam Freeze wanted one, you know, you're listening to the freeze disease on K-Rock, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, suddenly my voice was all over K-Rock because of the English accent. Mm. And then uh, Rick Carroll, the program director, the DJs were going on vacation and he said, would you fill in for two weeks? Because we've got all these celebrities coming in um, and uh, we've got one spot open and you do as a pseudo celebrity because of the English accent. And because they had Danny Elfman d filling in uh, as Moscow right. Eddie, I remember. Elvira was filling in, um, uh, people from uh, Circle Jerks were doing it and stuff like that. And so uh, I, I said, yeah, I, I, of course I'll do it. You know, And he said, well, you have to quit at KNEC and we're not going to pay you. And, but I figured K-Rock was so much bigger, I'd take the chance. Mm -hmm. And um, But then I got hired because of my attitude on the air. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, I say that in, in the book. You know, I, I had to work a nine-hour shift my first show because Elvira and Danny couldn't show up because mm -hmm. they were both trapped in different studios. Danny was working with uh, Johnny Vatos, their drummer, on mm -hmm. putting together the set for a tour couldn't get free and Elvira was shooting her mistress of the dark show for nice. channel nine and that was running late so uh, i did a nine hour show and in the final hour of the show this uh, white-haired man walked in and while well, i was reading a live commercial for the parrot place in van nuys <laughs> and said they were snakeskin and i you know turned the, off the microphone i said freddie's in hawaii i'm doing a commercial and uh, right now mccall's are on sale for 49.99 when's he back and i'm like He'll be back in two weeks. And he goes, well, I need to, I've been doing a commercial. And carried on doing it. He did it a third time. And I turned the mic on to get the fuck out of the studio. Or I'll throw you out. <laughs> he looked at me and he got out of the studio. And then after I finished the show, about 35 minutes later, the general manager, Pat Welsh, said, oh my, I didn't realize you'd do nine hours. And I said, I know, hopefully not tomorrow. And he goes, I want you to meet someone. And he took me back to his office and sitting behind Pat's desk in Pat's chair. <laughs> was the white-haired guy and uh, pat goes i want you to meet meet the owner of the station this is ken oh, roberts man. oh man and uh i know I, i'm wow. my stomach you know, <laughs> yes, and yes. then ken looked at pat because he didn't want to look at me uh -huh. and, and said uh ask him why he told me to fuck off <laughs> and, and i said i i didn't talk to, to pat i just walked forward and i leant on the desk and i got into ken's face and i said look as far as i know from working in radio the only way you make money is by selling commercials and when i'm on the air a radio station is always going to make money and i said all i knew is that someone came in and three times interrupted a live commercial and twice i said to them very nicely mm -hmm. the answer to their question and that i was doing a live commercial and the third time they interrupted me, I knew that if the sponsor was listening, they were not going to pay the radio station. So I told that person who was you to fuck off. I said, because no one's going to take money from a radio station I'm working for. There you go. And then, he, wow. What an answer. Yeah. And then he, he looked, he looked at me and he turned to Pat because he still didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> and he goes, I like the kid hire him and i got hired the first day and it was that, that was just because of the attitude i think not that's the accent so, that's it yeah, i love it it was yeah it's one of the best stories in the book okay i just got yeah. two or three more questions for you i'll hurry okay um, cool. so number one 
we should talk about your dad. He seemed like such a wonderful guy, and I'm, I might get choked up. Reading your book illustrates this relationship that is so beautiful to look at and to read about. And he passes away. But prior to that, what I found so interesting is that your records would come to their house. He'd listen to them. And I remember him saying to you, I think this Echo and the Bunny Men song is going to be really good. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, there's no uh, my, there's no way my dad would listen to an Echo and the Bunny Men album and know that it was good or anything. And he, uh, what an influence he must have been on you and on just supporting your career from the get-go, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he always was willing to let me take chances and do things. He he trusted in me, and uh, he I mean he loved music as well. I and mean, he had like me probably no musical talent himself, but a, a good ear. And I I remember him walking around the house singing Penny Lane from the Beatles and saying, "Oh, I love that song. I love that song." So he was able to pick up on that kind of thing. And so when I would get all the uh, records mailed to me from the uh, English record companies, because I'd been DJing in the clubs there and around Oxford and the West Country. Uh, I would listen to them in the front room, and Dad would quite often come in and listen with me. And so when I moved to America, the records still came from the British record companies, and Dad couldn't send the whole you know sixty albums a week to me. So he would send me th- you know two or three of what he considered the best. And you back then they'd be like on 12 inches, you know, so they'd be a single only four minutes long, but on a 12 inch vinyl. And, um, he would go through and, and listen to them and send them off to me. And he was responsible for breaking a lot of bands on K rock, you know, like tears for fears and talk, talk and stuff like that, that didn't have an American record label at the time. Oof. Oof. And, uh, it was fantastic. Ever. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, did your other K rock peers ever get jealous with your um you being so out there and known and acting and stuff uh, some of them a little bit but not too much uh, when i did the tv show like mv3 uh most of them were really co- very cooperative uh okay. about it my morning show partner ramondo uh, was and I made sure he was on camera a whole bunch of times. Like when we went to did MV3 week in Hawaii, he was doing the intros with me and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm sure there was a, a little bit of resentment, you know. Um, but it, it, they, no one was mean. No one took it out Good. on me. No, no Good. one uh, said anything like you know oh, you're too big for your britches yeah. or anything like that. It was just one of those things. We were all doing our own thing and and pushing forward. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just lucky enough to get the opportunity and, and deliver, you know, my, one of the things, again, my dad always said is make sure you show up on time and do your job. And I think that's one of the tricks to longevity. If, because most people don't, they don't do their job and they don't show up on time. And if, if you do, you're already ahead of 90% of the pack. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, let's can we talk about spell spellcaster for one second? Yeah, I watched absolutely. that. I watched that movie. I didn't know about it. I'd never heard of it before, and uh, I found it for free on some streaming service about five years ago. And I'm thinking, well, I love Richard Blade. I love Adam Ant. The chick from the uh, Aha video is in it. This should yeah. be fun, and it's only like 82 minutes or something. That felt like a long 82 minutes. Oh, it was. <laughs> It was a fantastic month. 
because you <laughs> shot it on okay. location in Italy. Yeah. It was uh -huh. fabulous to shoot. Great weather. It was the summer, and two weeks of it we shot at the uh, Dino De Laurentiis Studios, uh, uh, Cine Verite or whatever it is in um, uh, in Rome. So we and we stayed in Torvianica, which is right on the beach. Yeah. Oh my gosh, swimming in the bed every day. And the um, other two weeks we were at Charlie Band's castle. Charlie Band owned the uh, company Full Moon that made the movie, and he has a castle in Italy. Wow. Uh, with a big, big lake, and because uh -huh. uh, I was the star of the movie, I, I shot in the mornings. In the afternoons, I just went down to the lake and swam because I love oh. to swim, and it was just fabulous. Uh, the movie itself had no; it, it fell apart. The director had no idea what he was doing, and after two and a half to three weeks, Charlie Band flew out from the states because he realized there was no end to the movie. It didn't it made no sense at all so as far as i remember because i've avoided watching the movie all the way through is i think the end is like the the looking glass breaks and we all come back to life and it was like all a dream or something like that that was charlie band's idea oh, he really? said, we've got we have to have an end for the movie the movie has to finish somehow you know it can't just you know just peter out and um so that was it and then the, it sat on the shelf for about five years because no one wanted to release it. And then HBO bought it as part of a deal with Full Moon because they'd done uh, a bunch of other movies. Reanimator was their big one. And um, so that's how the movie finally got its shelf life. But it was a great experience. And Adam and I would go out at night and have dinner in, in Rome and sit there and talk about things and music. and. It was, it was, it was a, a great experience. The movie itself. So I agree with you. Uh, it's a long that's so minutes. funny. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, Richard, I could do this for days. I have, I've always wondered, I've always wanted to be you. I've always wanted to know you. I've always thought, I bet Richard and I would be friends if I knew him because we have so many, so many of the same, uh, interests and passions and i'm just grateful for everything you've put in the world thank you for being you uh, hey john thank you for so many great questions and a great podcast and a pleasure hanging with you man and uh, more power to you hopefully we get to talk again soon all right there you have it richard blade so that one meant a lot to me because ever since i saw him in girls just want to have fun i have just been fascinated with who this guy is there was a time there back in the day when i thought maybe I wanted to be a DJ too. Who doesn't? You know, you get to be on the radio and play all your favorite songs and force people to listen to what you want them to listen to. I think we all kind of wanted that. And I thought about that for a long time. And then I realized I probably wouldn't be able to have any kind of a normal life. And so I talked myself out of it. But because Richard's such a luminary in this area, I've just always kind of looked at him as like someone who did it and did it well and was successful and knows all the people that I wish I knew and had the kind of life that I wish I had. And now he's written these great books. So check out World In My Eyes if you wanna hear his whole story. What's interesting about that book too is that the whole formative years, which is normally when you're talking, when you're reading like a rock star's life uh, story and you're, he's talking about growing up, that's always almost the boring part of the book. In Richard's, that's almost the more interesting part of the book. But then there's also the unlocked interviews. And that's gonna be a lot, I haven't read that one yet, but that one's gonna be a lot of fun too just to hear his, his long conversations with all of these people. So anyway, check him out, and I'm so grateful that he talked to me.
And a huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mamakiewicz for putting it all together. Uh, thanks, folks. We will talk to you later. Cloud is blue.